Hello and welcome to the Intersection of Things. It's a feminist podcast which talks about the role of technology in the big social issues of today. Boom. So what are we talking about today, Ruth? How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's a very warm Sunday night in London and we're going to talk about pride. It is also pretty warm here in Vancouver. We often forget to kind of remind people that there's an ocean between us, but um, it's just as warm, so I feel your warmth, your pain. Yeah, the the struggle of podcasting is that I have to switch the fan off in the room and shut the door and the windows and just just sweat through this one, I think. Same. I have to close the windows and listeners might have, I don't know, noticed that I live close to the uh, SkyTrain station, which is like the metro station here. And we can hear those things sometimes. But anyways, a little bit of a piece of trivia there. So what are we talking about? We're talking about pride. Pride! (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Okay, I have to edit that so I don't blast your ears. But yes, we're talking about pride and being queer on the internet. And uh, all that awesome stuff. But why Pride? Well, it is it is Pride Month-ish. I mean, June was Pride Month. July is Pride Month. And here in Vancouver, it, Pride is not until August. So August is our Pride Month, I guess. So it's the summer of queers. Summer of queers. I love it. Yeah, it was Pride Parade in London yesterday. And how was it? It was all right. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I didn't go. <laughs> um, uh, there was some drama attached to the official parade so I'm a little bit glad I didn't go in the end where some TERFs trans-exclusionary radical feminists decided to push their way through the front and lie on the floor and be annoying to everybody so yeah I was I was at a gay picnic instead that's good that's good yeah it's um I I still I'm I'm so pissed at that like those TERFies please just stop like I think Ruth was saying in, in, in a very nice analogy, it's like going to a club, going to like a bar and dancing while holding a sign saying, I don't want to dance. Like, fuck off. Like, <laughs> honestly, like, if you don't think all women are women and if your feminism doesn't include all women, you can just, just leave. Just stop, please. Just, oof. as you can tell, this, this podcast supports all women, our feminism is, is is inclusive and we believe all humans deserve their human rights so if you think yeah. someone else is less than you can fuck off i was gonna say like one of the things we wanted to talk about was like a little bit of discussion about pride and like what it is and i think what it definitely isn't is a place to exclude another member of the community of like the queer community that's it's just kind of ridiculous to use the pride parade to try and put a message that is about excluding someone from that community. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when when we're talking about the power imbalance, right? When we're talking about cis people, cis people for our listeners, um, just people who were born and whose body and identity aligns with the identity that society gave them, like gender identity, I mean. Uh, So like if you were born a man and like that's what the doctor said and you agree, then you're cis and trans is not that it's like your gender does not align with what the doctor said two seconds after looking at you but yeah it's it's this whole like power imbalance of like hegemonic people cis people just being like yeah we don't like other people you you can tell you can tell i'm pretty pissed about this but um but i i just don't like i just don't like people trampling on our sisters rights so yeah so that's the thing but okay, let's let's get back to the internet. So why? What's up with pride? What's up with queers and the internet? Why the intersection of things? Tackling this. Well, there's like many different things that I think 
our crossover points and things we want to talk about. I mean, for a, for a starting point, I think the internet is a place where people who are of like minority sexualities and genders have been able to have a voice and to connect and to campaign for their rights and that's that's been like really amazing and also like so much cultural content that's created on the internet is queer content and you know has enabled people to make stuff where studios are no longer the gatekeepers and that's been really great but at the same time those possibilities seem to be changing i think especially with youtube is one of the things that i was really thinking about when we were putting this together is when I think about the YouTube that I was like really into like eight years ago, it was a much more like queer space. I feel like the biggest YouTubers, the ones that I was watching, like Hannah Hart, tended to be queer creators. And I was listening to a podcast interview with her the other day on the Internet Creators Guild podcast. It's really interesting. It's like a a full like hour long in depth interview where she talks about the state of YouTube and. She made this point that she was like, I never expected YouTube, what was unpopular on YouTube, to be the popular kids. And they, they like her and Hank Green kind of laughed about it. You know, how could we, right. you know, lol, as, of course you'd think popular people will be popular. But actually, that wasn't the way it used to be. It used to be the people who weren't cool could actually become cool and have these huge followings. And now they talked about how like a lot of the majority of watchers on YouTube are middle school age or whatever that is in the UK, like 12, 13, I think. Mm -hmm. And that changes the demographic. It changes what they're interested in. So it's what that age think are cool. And how like now we have assholes like PewDiePie who are the top content creators. Right. So that has changed. And then we get on to monetization and who is able to make money on YouTube, which is basically key for what you get to watch because people who are going to do this full time, going to make the high quality content are also going to be the people who can make a profession from it and get paid. Yeah. Well, and if you pair up that with the fact that YouTube and Google want to present themselves as a very progressive brand, but in in reality, they ban or demonetize a lot of queer content. So I follow, as you might have uh, already been aware through this podcast, I follow a lot of queer and sex ed people on YouTube, and they constantly are pointing to the fact that their videos are being either not banned, but like tagged as not suitable for young audiences but like i mean if it's a sex ed 101 it is meant for youth i mean it's it's meant for everyone but like that's where you need i mean you need to start knowing your body and talking about safer sex and consent and gender you know very early on so if your video gets restricted that's the word restricted it's kind of defeating its purpose the second thing is like it gets demonetized so basically creators are not making money but like people like what what was their name logan paul or paul whatever who yeah, goes and logan paul. and does racist things in japan for clicks they get money but like someone talking about trans people don't get money uh, i think i'm particularly thinking of this youtuber chase ross he's a sex educator and uh he talks a lot about trans issues he does a lot of reviews about sex toys too yeah and he has made he has made some tests of like uploading one video with a generic title and the same video with the word trans in the title and immediately getting demonetized. So I think there's this whole thing of like, okay, YouTube, you want to put the rainbow flag on your logo. You want to say that this is like YouTube pride month or whatever. But at the same time, you're actually not paying your 
content creators who are supporting your LGBTQ community online. So rainbow washing is a thing. Uh, we see it in, in obviously everywhere now, now that being queer is slowly being normalized. Um, you see banks coming forward in the pride parade, but also not accepting trans identities. This, I think this happened here in, in, um, in Canada. Yeah, do you want to just define rainbow washing? Rainbow washing is when a corporation or a business uses the label of, of queers or like the rainbow flag to present themselves as more progressive than they actually are. So it's just for points, it's for identity points without actually making any or taking any actions to actually support the community in the ways that they could if they really wanted to. So they get all the applause and zero commitment. And because I, I think, and this is just personal opinion, because we're so starved for recognition, sometimes just having a bank or, or institutions that have oppressed you before all of a sudden turn around and wear your colors feels somewhat good. But like, like no, hun, like this is this is not how you get our business, like you and or our support or our votes. Like you actually have to do things that benefit and make up for the damage that these institutions have done to the community. So yeah, YouTube is a perfect example for rainbow washing. And same with Twitter. Uh, I don't know, I have not seen gay Twitter, but uh, or Twitter branding themselves as, as gay, but they do have their little hashtags with hashtag pride. And at the same time, they're not banning Nazis and homophobes. So, you know, they can also yeah. get on the bus and leave. And I think that's like one of the other things that really got to me about this story about uppercase chase the content creator was that he gets his videos banned or sorry not banned he gets his videos demonetized yeah and and age restricted and age restricted which are two different things that youtube can do to a channel um so some of them it means like younger people aren't allowed to watch them some of it just means like no income at all and youtube does this demonetization thing because it decides that the video isn't advertiser friendly and what it decides is advertiser friendly is the most generic non-controversial non-political kind of content and that really gets to me at the same time as you said with having all these big brands sponsor pride and so forth like you know you have starbucks have got all these flags everywhere so logically it is advertiser friendly, right? Like if Starbucks wants to have a rainbow flag hanging in their window, then they are friendly towards queer communities. So he should be able to have those adverts. So that also really frustrates me is like, YouTube is claiming that these videos aren't advertiser friendly. And yet there are all these brands out there literally using the flag, using gay couples in their adverts. So why aren't those adverts in those videos? You know, if you're going to have, like, the vodka ads that are in London, about, like, you know, whatever, labels don't matter except the label on the bottle or something. Or the label doesn't matter, it's what is in the bottle. I think that's it. You know, and then they're trying to, like, do this kind of, like, fun approach. I'm just like, why not put those vodka adverts on? Like, if you're going to make that decision, you need to let people have a lot more choice. Like, let the brands decide more detailed about where they want to be and let other people who are the creators decide what adverts they want because at the same time as all this story was going on about how many videos are being demonetized and i and i like i'm just going to put a brackets and demonetizing means losing your career like 
it is a job, it is your time, you are making videos professionally. If someone demonetizes those videos, that is losing your income. Like, it's like being fired by YouTube. So whilst that is happening, and it's a really serious thing, there was another story where anti-gay adverts were appearing at the front of queer content creators' videos. Like, adverts about, like, conversion therapy, I think. Do you yeah, remember yeah, this? Yeah. And it's just like, these people need to be able to choose what gets shown before the videos. Like, who has the power in this situation is once again all Google. Yeah, and in theory, I mean, YouTube uh, responded saying, oh, you can pick and choose who advertises on your channel, or you can actually ban certain people from advertising on your channel. The problem, as Hank Green demonstrated in this in this video tutorial that he made just to prove his point was that number one you can't just say hey please don't show any like homophobic comment or or ads in my content you actually have to just say i want to ban this specific url so if it's like you know i hate the rainbow.com slash one you you ban that but if i hate the rainbow.com slash two will be will be a valid ad so it's really hard just to ban like one url you know like urls are generated you know basically by the post so and you can just ban i hate the rainbow.com but all they all they have to do then is just buy another domain which costs five ten dollars and continue with it with with their ad campaign so that's that's a thing demonetization age restricting of queer content and in the meantime they get all the cookies for for putting the rainbow flag and this is not new i mean i think it is important for us to like time machine to know that in the beginning when corporations started adopting the rainbow flag it wasn't really because they believed in any progressive messaging uh it's usually has to do with markets right it's like hey who has Two incomes and no kids, as they say, double income, no kids. Who has disposable money? Who's living in cheek residential places in the city? Who goes out? Who consumes gay people? I mean, some of us are not that cheek, but, but we're cute. Anyways, <laughs> and we spend money on it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so damn straight. Wait, no, but that's but not. That's the point. So yeah, so it's not about them caring who you love fuck or whatever it's it's just because you're a market so be very well aware when someone's using the flags know that yeah it, it has it sends a message of in, of inclusion quote unquote but it's mainly because it's making them money like you are someone that will potentially give them money so know that 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 this is exactly what's going on this is what happens with the vodka people this is what happens with youtube with anyone even police now are sometimes you know giving out stickers with police and the flag and you're like okay if you can stop killing people that would be fantastic this is the way you show your colors not by giving me this thing so so yeah yeah it reminds me when gchq who are the basically major spy agency in the uk one they like lit up their offices in a rainbow flag colors for pride and then they did a little advert about how great it is to work at GCHQ and you could, um, you know, it's a, it's a gay-friendly office and really welcoming and you can walk in the footsteps of Alan Turing. And I don't know if you know, but Alan Turing, famous codebreaker and cryptographer as he was, um, wasn't he, like, 
forcibly electrocuted by the state for being gay. Uh, chemically castrated, probably tortured in other ways, but he was, yeah, he was tortured basically by the state. And it's a really nice segue because I've been reading this book, the Canadian one, War on Queers, that kind of links up with Alan Turing's story because forever, um, this book is kind of tackling the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s in Canada. Forever, the state uh, thought that being queer was a risk and a matter of national security. So a lot of a lot of uh, effort was put into ousting gays from the government. In a way, they were kind of, the book says, gays were seen as almost synonymous with communists and treated in the same way and treated as, as, as a risk. For example, one of the arguments would be, if you're queer, you are at risk of being blackmailed by the enemy. So we are going to blackmail you instead and kick you out of, of government, kick you out of any position. Of course, um, there's stories in this book that, that tell how uh, some, I mean, some people were using this doctrine of ousting gays as a form of abuse. So I want you to do something, but if you don't, I'm going to tell your employer that you're queer, and then your employer would just be like, I know you're being harassed, but are you queer? And then out you go. So careers, brilliant careers. And this was not only this was not only government. I mean, we're talking anything that has some, some area of um, authority. I don't know, like scholars. I Because of this book, I think I'm now getting targeted ads on Twitter saying, were you affected by the gay purge? And I'm like, oh, God. But yeah, it's, it's actually talking about how queerness and national security has, at least in Canada, and I, I mean, we, if we saw it with Alan Turing, it's not only in Canada, is is not that long ago that that the government itself was not very happy to have us around. I think I have to check my dates, but I think uh, gay marriage was not a thing in Canada until like what two thousand and three. I think uh, British Columbia, where I live, was the first province, and then everybody was just like, "Oh, BC so cool. We should kind of like jump on the same wagon." But it's not that long. Like I was already born, you know. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it was really recent in the UK. I remember pretty vividly the entire campaign. I am now like, when when did it actually pass? I'm just going to Google it. Equal marriage, UK. Hold on a second. 2006? Are you what? serious? No. Yeah, it was twenty. It was twenty fourteen. I knew it was really recent. Twenty fourteen. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, and that's the thing, right? And and we're only talking about marriage, which is one of the most hegemonic things. The one of the most like normalized things to get queers into to being quote unquote normal, right? Um, a lot of and I know like the queer fight doesn't stop at marriage, and that was not the end goal. Marriage is basically a contract, a recognition that the state gives you as a couple and you can access a bunch of rights and obligations too. Uh, it's a contract, it's a legal contract, but like it goes way beyond that. Like just because you're allowed to be married doesn't mean that people on the street stop being assholes to you. People at work start, stop being homophobes. You can still be fired for stuff if you don't, you know, if you don't fit the culture, as they say. It's a little... It reminds me of people saying, like, I don't get why feminism exists. Women have the vote. What more do they want? <laughs> well, it's like, how about being treated like human beings? We have time? the vote, though. <laughs> yeah. And, and the sad thing is, I've heard people say that, you know, like, 
literally just being like, I don't understand, like, what, what more? It's as though, as though legal rights are everything. And the thing is, legal rights are definitely important. Like, I would never say they're not because the law is definitely a tool that you can use to protect yourself and you need to have those things enshrined. But the law is not the same as society and the law can change without society changing. Yeah. And then you start seeing slowly how, just like what we were mentioning, how like corporations acknowledged there was a big market in the queer community, in the gay community, and they started marketing towards that. I think a lot of governments and I, I cannot if you listeners if you know the term for this I cannot remember but it's like when a government puts forward certain progressive it's like window dressing like you put forward certain progressive policies but then at the same time it's kind of just to like a palette cleanser for all the bullshit that you're doing in in the background so in the 2000s here in Canada we've seen a lot of like now there's there used to be on TV these moments I think it's called like heritage moments or like Canadian history or something there's just very you know public TV sort of thing of like this you know hockey it's Canadian moment and there was one I think that was I think I hope I'm remembering this correctly because I know I've seen it but I was like was this a parody I don't think so it was uh, two uh, royal Canadian Mountie police people and they're you know like they're dressed in their their red outfit with like nice hat and like their boots it's the RCMP people the Mounties and they're and they're gay I think they're two I don't know if two men two women I don't remember but you know there's almost like this the RCMP like embracing the the queerness of it all and I was just like I remember seeing that and I'm just being like wow I think it was through a, a prof that I knew in university uh, Marcus Moldis his name and he said like well beware of homo Nationalism. Homo nationalism is going to be a thing now, right? It's like once you have all of this economic power concentrated in the queers and political power concentrated in in this in this community, the hegemonic powers are gonna start wanting to get you to their side. And what's what's more obvious that that embracing you as a queer in police forces or in the military or in spy agencies yeah exactly right so it's it's important for us to know um to be aware of what's going on like i know people are just like oh come on lighten up aren't these small wins it's like i i think it's just important not to just applaud everything because again we've been start for recognition respect forever then that everything seems like like the best thing in the world but it's um important just to be aware where this comes from and this same book we're gonna put it in the in the footnotes for if people are interested but it's by uh gary kinsman and patricia gentile and it was oh published by ubc press so local to vancouver yeah they basically make a note at the beginning i think it must have been first or second chapter where they say that capitalism functions under the premise of the social organization of forgetting they use Whoa. this term the social organization of forgetting which means for for capitalism to continue you need to be able to cut that historical memory of how we got here how did we get these rights and if you do that then people a take rights for granted but also b forget the struggles and forget who kind of owes you you know who owes you to repair the damage that set you behind for so long i mean you see it also in in the black communities in in the u.s with reparations you see it here i mean i don't know how many elder queens I know and hang out with but where's my history right where's where do I learn from I mean I do I do have a few but like it's not like they've been there my entire life 
So it takes me back to the internet, right? It takes me back to how do we get these historical memories? How do we get to learn about the things that brought us here? And for me, I don't know you, but for me, the internet has been huge since I was a tiny little gay kid. It, it's been a source for me to say like, huh, people like me exist elsewhere. And not only that, when you look at history, it's like, hey, you know, Berlin in the, before the war, raging gay bars everywhere. Like what happened? Um, institutes for sexology, sexology, I don't know. The, the study of sex and queerness, not only Kinsey, but also like in Europe, just to see the photos. I'm like, whoa, you were already talking about trans bodies and gender and gender non-binary people. And then the war hit. And all of a sudden we think that we're coming up with this. Like we're just rediscovering things that our ancestors, really our queer grandparents were working on already. Same with things that I see in Mexico, right? I see like some of the, some people were unearthing old police photos. And it's like, there was a raid in this bar. And then there's this beautiful photo. I hope I can put it in the footnotes of like, I know, 10, 12 queer people just like in the police just being like posing for for their shot together as a group and I'm just like okay I love you all and I didn't know they I mean of course I knew they existed because we've existed forever but just to see it right and that would not have been possible without the internet and of course probably libraries but you know just to be scrolling down looking at yes. a cat photo and then like seeing this and you're like hey we're there yes I was just gonna say like that's the thing to me is I was thinking about really cool little set of photos I saw on Tumblr recently that was like Victorian lesbians having a great time and loads of cool shots and I was just enjoying how much how fun it is to just see that on Tumblr you're just scrolling like you said and then you learn something and you you get that bit of history and it's true like of course there have always been historians and of course there are people doing their PhDs in like Victorian lesbian culture or something right but the accessibility to that information is what's different is that before I would have had to go like hmm I think I really want to go and learn about that kind of culture or I'd, or maybe you know I'd read books like Tipping the Velvet and get like a tiny snippet but to be able to just like constantly learn and find these things kind of by accident and have people share them around and say, hey, have you seen this? Like, it's just, it's so much easier to share that knowledge and to just be reminded constantly that there is a history that you went to in school. And the history that I wasn't taught in school is just like a whole other long topic of stuff. Every so often the things that kind of pass you by and you're like, oh, hmm, guess I was taught wrong about colonialism, guess I was taught wrong about Rosa Parks, like, guess I was taught wrong about, like, all these scientific inventions, and you find out how much more agency everyone who is woman or a person of colour had in those narratives than I was ever presented with. Yeah, I think it hasn't quite hit yet how grateful I am for for technologies like the internet and also for the communities that make use of them to further this. Because I know whoever invented the internet was not thinking about this, but I think as humans, as, as people, as communities, we kind of have this impetus for like using the tools and being like, hey, we can make something cool about this. And, and just, I don't know, just the amount of things that I would not have known, learned, uh, been exposed to, <laughs> good and bad, because of the internet, it's, I'm pretty, pretty grateful. And something that I am not quite well versed in, but exists, and drumroll, is dating apps and hookup apps, which are also part of the community, more so if I'm correct, I don't know, in the gay men community, the whole like grinder scruff things, uh, but 
is Tinder for for yeah Tinder Tinder has lesbian stuff and I don't know if they have any like gender nonconform peeps but like hookup apps that's another area where like the the technologies are kind of intersecting with queerness and before I mean it's a little bit late in in the episode but like we have to again remind you all that we're talking from a very like western global north perspective things are quite different in other places so this is kind of like this snippet of it's like disclaimer but like you have stuff like grinder i think when we were at rightscon i went to um a panel where grinder was saying how they were striving to work with communities because of course they're a business they want to scale and they find that at some point hey the way we do gayness here and hookups here is not the way that other places do in fact someone can get killed if we get it wrong so they start doing um i mean obviously research but to work with okay how would you have grinder in this particular part of the world where if somebody finds out it can be used against you um, in court or or you can be blackmailed for it and i know we talk a lot about encryption and security and safety but they were saying like sometimes you know when when robert hits the road as they say nobody really goes to jail i mean a lot of people go to jail because of lack of encryption but like they would go to jail because they saw the icon of grinder on the phone and that's evidence enough forget if the messages were encrypted or not you had the icon there that's evidence you're gay so they start doing in terms of design they start doing things like okay let's make it a thing that you can hide with a different icon let's make it so that your messages delete after you close the session or you know like something that allows you to use a product with the same purpose acknowledging the realities that you're in that being said before we're like oh grinder's so cute grinder also <laughs> lately where they were like slammed for like disclosing hiv status of i don't know how many millions of users um yeah they were sharing them with third party companies that they used to improve their software so they had these two different companies called aptimize and localic lo i can't say this word now localytics mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and they were sharing the grinders data with this company to ask them to improve their software but the data that they'd shared included the hiv status of the users that were in their data sharing set and so these like third party companies had all that information and it comes back to a similar kind of thing with Facebook and its Cambridge Analytica system where they're like, oh, we never sell your data. We No, 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 your data is, is precious to us. They just shared it for free with trusted vendors. Like, but they chose that these were their trusted vendors, not the people using the app. Yeah, and I think I think it was um, Aaron Adwater from Open Privacy who shared that you really cannot anonymize data. Like, you can make it a little bit more anonymous, but like, if you are one of five in this neighborhood, in this city where being gay is illegal, and you are being, you know, targeted by police or whoever um, employers it, and you only have like five data points you know like the odds of you being one of those like oh yeah you live in this block okay cool so i guess you're the one because we only have one person who matches your location you know it's it's not that easy yeah i mean we mentioned it in our health episode when we talked about strava 
And it's the same thing with any kind of app that you're giving personal information to. Just because it doesn't have your name attached to it doesn't mean it's truly anonymous. Like, don't don't trust anything that claims it can anonymize your data because actually we're unique. We have enough different parts of ourselves that if you have a unique medical condition, live in an area, have this sexuality, it's really easy to find out who that is because we don't all look the same, even when we're just put down as data sets. It's still actually an identifiable human being. Yep. But going to have actually changed that practice now, thank God. Like, they're no longer sharing that set of information with their third-party apps. Yeah, there was an interesting comment on this uh, HIV status reveal story in the Guardian article that I read about it, where Grinder had made a comment to say when they were trying to cover up around this HIV status reveal and make it seem like it wasn't such a big deal, they said that Grinder is a public forum. Public and forum. That's interesting because I would argue that it's not. It's a space with some context to it. Like it's not public just because many, many people thousands, millions of people could use it, doesn't make it a public space because there's an expectation of what kind of people are on the app that changes the context of revealing that information because you feel like it's somehow a private space, I think, within the fact that it's an app used by millions of people. It's not the same as going out into the street and shouting your HIV status. Also, can we kind of just declare that public space doesn't mean you lose your right to privacy? Yes. Like, I think usually it's like, oh, you make a post on Facebook. This is a public space. No, because it's paywalled. So it, or not paywalled, just behind a wall. You have to sign up. So it's not public. I know because I was kicked out of Facebook. More on that in a bit. But it's it's just this notion that it's like, oh, this it, on Twitter, it's like public. Your right to privacy should not be only active or valid in private spaces. Like everybody has a right to have a safe experience online and the right to give consent or remove consent on what parts of their life are sold to third parties. So just because something is like has a lot of users doesn't mean that that you have zero privacy just because it's somewhat semi public. So just just because I I hear this a lot the whole like it's public you still have rights and consequences. I think it's very controlling as an instinct to tell people that it's a public space, so don't expect any privacy. Like, that's used by the kind of people who take upskirting shots. Like, uh, the idea what's, that, what's upskirting shots? Uh, it's a disgusting thing that some men do of taking a phone camera and putting it underneath a woman's skirt in order to take a picture. Don't do that, and if you see someone doing that, slap their phone away from them. Yeah, it's sexual assault and it's illegal. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so people do that and then try and claim that they're in public. And as though anything goes. If you saw someone, if someone goes up to you in a public space and just takes a photograph of your face, you would not be okay with that. Just because you're standing in the street, you still, we're coming back to like bodily autonomy and consent again. It's still you're still yourself you still own your body there's no idea of like the only time in which you own yourself is when you're in the home and that's what concerns me is this idea that like there are moments in which you no longer own yourself that's not true like you should always be in control of yourself yes that includes in the street where you don't want people taking photographs of you or you don't people recording the conversation you're having with the person you're walking down the street with and that still counts online like if you're on facebook and someone 
takes a screenshot of your comment to a friend and then shares that on their wall with a bunch of other people without your permission, that still feels inappropriate. There are lots of different ways that people can do inappropriate behavior in spaces that are so-called public. Mm-hmm. Like, just, I really question that word. Like, you always own yourself, no matter where you are. Yep, absolutely. And you owe other people the respect to their boundaries and their privacy. So, also, it's, it's like, you have the right to do that, but you also have the obligation to respect other people's stuff. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, space. We'll, we'll have another episode on that, because that's one of my favorite topics, as people yeah, know. Yeah, and I think we keep coming back over and over again to, like, what does it mean to be a public space on the internet or like yeah. is there such a thing i don't know if this is going to make it but like when people say like oh what do you want to like continue studying or something it's like i want to study space and power and this comes from i mean i've been interested for a while but like uh lawyer a lawyer from the bccla the british columbia civil liberties association uh by the name of uh, michael vaughn she uh, wrote this thing on the Olympics in Vancouver and CCTV and like this whole like surveillance stuff, surveillance of space. And she, well, reading that, introduced me to the term of uh, legal geographies. And, and basically saying like, in theory, you have human rights, right? But in practice, you see that human rights are not attached to the body. They're attached to the space because go to the border and a change of space changes your rights. And then go to the stadium where the Olympics are happening. Your right to privacy changes. So whoever controls the space controls you. So we keep saying like if the Internet is a space, which it is, I would argue, whoever controls the Internet controls the people who make use of it. And it's very important to keep this in mind whenever you're tackling any interaction of power, right? Like they might say, well, you can do whatever you want with your body. Yeah, but if I control the job space, the hiring space, how you dress, how you, you know, the uniform you wear, I'm controlling your body too. So, yeah, so we, okay, it's it's just, I'll just, I'm making you curious people. Come back and we'll, we'll, we'll tackle this. I mean, um, we could link, I, I would say like the link back in to talking about pride is there's a reason why people make closed groups and safe spaces on the internet, you know, to have rooms where you say, these are my rules in this space. Mm-hmm. Like this is a Facebook group for queer people of color or yeah. people, queer people with disabilities, because then you have like a safe space where you're not worried that someone else is going to come in and ask questions that you don't want to answer or like tell you things that you didn't need to hear. And this is also why pride as a like a physical occupation of space in a city is so important, because if you get to control, quote unquote, I don't want to say control, um, if you get to influence the space in a major metropolitan area or like anywhere, if you make yourself visible and present and celebrate yourself, you're occupying space, you're effectively affecting everybody else's rights for the better, I would argue, because visibility is a thing. You see community being, you know, you're basically saying, look at this one million people behind me. They're here and they think I'm okay. So don't you dare touch me or my people or my baby gays. Just don't, right? So it's space and power kind of comes back like this whole occupation visibility and just this is why it's also important because we live still in a very straight world and like why don't we have a straight pride like we do like i see people making out when they're straight outside all the time and 
and I'm not like you straight. Or oh, sometimes I am in my head, but like, <laughs> but you know, it's it's a it's it's a thing. It's normalized. Nobody's gonna beat them up for that. Well, I've had friends who have had that experience, not even because of making out, just because they seemed gay. So it is important, and it's it's interesting that you bring up Facebook and just how it opens. You know, like this opportunity for like private groups and and stuff like that because facebook has this thing of like i want to talk about the real name policy so as i mentioned just a bit ago um i was kicked out of facebook because i used a name that did not sound quote-unquote real now realness is another thing but um it's kind of weird how people believe that real names are going to decrease harassment. I mean, whoever thought this clearly has never had to hide. Like, Jack Smith can be a Nazi and be on the platform, but like, Crunchy Mac Coffee Face, who's probably queer, who doesn't want an employer to know about them, or who's trans, or who's, I don't know, has something that might put them in at risk maybe they're from a place where being queer is wrong um not wrong illegal dangerous you know we in the internet we've used aliases forever nicknames you know like it's it's been more the time that we've used a nickname an alias than the one that we've used quote unquote real names what's a real name anyways and i i don't know i just want to smash real name policies because it just affects not only like people who don't have like a white name or like a like a normalized name there's a lot of uh, first nations native people indigenous people whose last name might be crow and all of a sudden the algorithm is like nope that's not a name like who are you to tell me that's not a name number one yeah and they say that they will let you have this uh, um, not normal in air quotes name if you prove your identity if you prove that that's your name and now they call it your authentic name so they used to say you had to prove it was your birth certificate name and now they'll let you have it if you have some other form of identification that will say this is the name that you go by yeah facebook asked me for my passport i was like you know what if jenny didn't have to give you a passport i'm not gonna give you my passport bye and so I decided to leave. I know people who have submitted um, IDs and still were rejected. So I'm like, okay. But like, you know, just the, the fact that to think that every person, even even a Jack Smith, might not have that name in their passport. So this is very important, right? Like all of a sudden, somebody reports you because you are not that person. Facebook is like, oh, we just want to confirm to create a safe community. Give me your passport or your ID or a contract. Like, there's a lot of information there. Um, And maybe your name is not Jack Smith in those official documents for whatever reason. And you, I mean, is that making Facebook more secure? Is this literally, quote unquote, connecting people? I would argue no, and it's um, it's it's interesting just to see how these super narrow-minded policies are being implemented, and and because they don't make sense, I'm I'm a hundred percent, well, ninety-nine point nine percent sure that this has nothing to do with keeping the space safe, and more to do with actually having more information and power over the users, because then they can have like a, an official ID jet registry, right, of um, people, which. It's a lot. Yeah, I think that Mark Zuckerberg feels that it makes them look more legitimate, more serious. Everyone has real names here. This isn't Twitter. 
Like this is this is the place to have an identity on the internet. This is where you connect with your family and your friends. Like I mean, his idea is that Facebook should be the internet, and by making it this place where you have your real name and well, with quote marks, and like you talk to your family, it's seen as like that's how you have to be on the internet. Whatever else you do, whatever other social media platform you're on, you have to have a Facebook place. Yep. And last, not lastly, but I can also see other ways. I mean. Populations that intersect with queerness. So you have the queers of color, black queers, queers and disabilities. How there's always this tendency to adapt the technologies that are by design not made for us to make them work. So it's it's still kind of interesting to recognize that while the systems might be fucked, there's like really cool uh, samples of like resilience from these communities. And whether these businesses want to admit it or not they look at that for for innovation quote unquote like there's like oh how are these people adapting oh let's let's take it and uh, and now make it a feature without actually giving credit or recognizing what um what these things are for i'm just thinking like all of the voice recognition stuff like alexa and google whatever google has voice recognition would not have been a thing without the disability movement that demanded voice recognition to control technologies it would not have been a thing and all of a sudden it's just it's just a feature right it's actually something that's that's a key selling point of a device um yeah So that's, I just wanted to say that. And, oh, and another way to adapt that is uh, Twitter pronouns. Have you noticed this? Yeah, it's become more and more of a thing of everyone adding their pronouns to their Twitter bios. I only did mine, I think, a couple of months ago. And it's interesting, like, before I thought, um, before I thought it was a thing that people who are trans or non-binary did in order to make it clear you know, what pronouns they preferred, which it is. But I was like, oh, it's not for me. I had this idea in my head somehow that it was almost like appropriative for me to do that too. And mm. then I read like a really good Twitter thread where someone was just like, no, it's about normalizing. Like instead of it making it some kind of flag, like I'm trans, it's just, we all need to say what our pronouns are. And then everyone can just get used to that being a question. And I think that's really easy to just like, I hear you, you said, this is your pronoun, cool, gonna use it now. Even if you feel like the pronoun that you use is obvious to the world, you still need to just kind of like be part of making it normal. Yep. Yeah. It's, um, I love this little shift in, in culture. I see it a lot in like, in, in the digital rights space, in the queer spaces and activist spaces. I mean, certain activist spaces, not the hyper white ones, but, um, but yeah, no, it's it's pretty, it's pretty cool, just to again, to find the the pockets of awesome, because I bet at some point that's gonna be a feature, like, I'm telling you. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything else? I think I think we've gone I'm all over the place, but I mean, of course we could not keep this episode straight. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love a good pun. I'm a I'm a sucker for a good pun. Um, awesome. We could talk about the Hannah Gadsby Netflix special and just say, <laughs> "Well, that was a thing." Ah, oh, God, yes. Mm. That I made notes. I've never watched a comedy special where I started making notes. Like partway through, I was like, "No, no, no." This is too good. I need like to write down quotes and I need to read through these notes again. So yes, it's a comedy special, but I like want to spoil no it for people. Comedy. Yeah, um, a friend of mine, Sam, recommended it to me, and I think 
she said something like have tissues ready or like make sure that you have the space to watch it because we wanted i mean i have a group of friends that we'd like to watch comedy uh stand-up shows and stuff and um but this one was just like no let's just watch it on our own and then i realized why and uh so people i mean people probably here have already heard of uh, nanette the hannah gatsby stand-up comedy special on netflix but like it's a thing i for me it was super powerful to see someone who who's queer who's as, as she describes herself gender not normal <laughs> which i love that um which means um, or i interpret as as doesn't portray femininity and womanhood the way the norm expects you to um just to see someone with such mastery of storytelling and like kind of to do this meta analysis of what comedy is and what story is and what trauma is and there was not a beat wasted exactly it's i mean i if i think i have put a poster in my brain of the moment when she's like i'm in my prime i'm like yes because a 17 year old is never in her prime when she's talking about picasso and how fucked up he was um to talk about how she she mentions at some point and I don't want to spoil it so people watch it and it's ama- but watch it under a blanket or something but it's not all sadness like you will laugh too oh like- yeah it's it's hilarious it's so and that's what makes it so such a nice thing like a like a moment right because it's it's yeah it's it's beautiful if I can say that um it's, it's really well crafted um it's not only and watch it if you like watch it with your eyes if you can if you can um because there's a lot of like you know the side eye the little pauses the little you know everything is it's like like she says it's theater and it's uh it's it's really good piece of theater and the way she employs anger i loved it as you people here on the podcast might know i'm just like grumpy sometimes all the time and uh, but I love how she uses anger and employs it as a tool and then she's always in control like she has crafted that show and she says for one hour that's the little bit, bit of theater that she wants to put in the world to talk about topics that we all know exist but in a way that I have personally not have seen performed before yeah it makes you think about the nature of comedy so that's, that's the thing. And I wanted to say also, that are you are you following Queer Eye? Because yes. I don't want to talk about Queer Eye, but I want to talk about this podcast uh, by Jonathan Banez that I just discovered. It's called Getting Curious. People, after you download every single episode that we've had, go to Getting Curious and download those. Because I was, I took a really long walk yesterday and I was binging on that. And it was like from who was the Beyonce of the Renaissance? And, and he interviews an art historian to Saudi Arabia. And he interviews like an expert, like a doctor in like history. And it's like, like, where were you my entire life? Like whenever someone says representation matters, and this is why I was thinking, you know, Hannah Gatsby, like I was just like, holy shit, I didn't know this was possible because I felt something just seeing this queer woman say this thing in a way that I've never experienced in my life. Then I see this you know this podcast getting curious being like super fucking smart super fucking gay and i was just like ah this is amazing like this is 
a shade of the queer spectrum that I've never experienced in my life. And I and I, I mean, I've experienced it in my own life, but to see it out there and also to see people clapping for it and like applauding it, I'm just like, yeah, man, like this is this is something. Yeah, it all feels like so different from growing up. This ability to see yourself like I just think it's it is changing things like I think about Sensate and that kiss in Sensate at Pride and I was just like I just cried like because I was like I can't believe I'm even like seeing this on television it's just amazing it's beautiful and then at the same time like I can like nerd out forever about Steven Universe and it's a children's tv show that has so many queer female characters and I'm like blown away there was nothing like that ever when I was younger and I'm just so happy for kids that they get that now well and I think I want to take the opportunity to just because we sound already like old people but like this is an opportunity to ask of our co-generation peers to like don't forget to tell this story to to the baby queers right to the baby gays to know to not participate in the, that social organization of forgetting to actually tell whoever's coming after that they have to maintain it like things don't like the rights don't just stay like they're in a constant struggle and we have to fight to not only improve but to maintain because this can go away really fast like I was mentioning in Europe before and like what happened in Mexico and like colonization and stuff things are fragile so and let's enjoy the awesomeness that we're experiencing now but also let's like commit to tell the story forward and like laterally too right and yeah just be aware like thank you for everybody everybody just making awesome content I'm still sort of waiting for for like queer butch brown like me sort of to like see and I don't know what that feels like but already what I'm seeing with like you know Nanette is or or even this podcast uh oh man it was it's just quite something so but you're the representation for someone else aww anyways so so yeah um I think this this has been an episode. I think definitely, for sure, that was a thing. Uh, I think that was a really nice note to end it on. Um, yep. Is there anything in particular you're taking with you? Wow. Um, gosh, I feel like this was... Um, hold on a second. One eternity later. <laughs> one eternity. I'm so in love. I'm so in love with that SpongeBob meme. Sorry, go on. <laughs> I think it's the stuff that you brought from the book you've been reading about memory and it comes back in with the stuff that we were talking about about finding history on tumblr and that we have to like keep telling our stories so that we don't forget the progress we've already made and that we don't forget the struggle like that was a thing that i i was remembering as well is hearing people claim that in the uk it was the conservative party that got us gay marriage i'm like they were the yes they were the party in power when that happened. But don't try and claim that the conservative parties wanted that. Like, no, that's the same party. That it's had like, do you want a cookie for getting out of the way? <laughs> yeah, like, don't give the credit to the government. If you're gonna credit people, you credit the people who fought for that. Like, no. And and that's the kind of thing. Like, if you look back and you start just claiming that like government officials are the ones who gave us our rights, you've got to remember who fought for them. And I think that's really really important. What about you? What are you taking away from it? <laughs> hmm. Oh God. Um. I I think I'm taking away. I mean, similar to you, this whole like the 
the duty of passing along our stories, but also just to see how happy, for example, how happy you were when you were talking about Sense8 and like Steven Universe. And I mean, I know, I know we're like, well, I'm in my late, late 20s. And it's, I don't know, how like, how still hits us, right? I mean, we're, we're young, but we're not that young, but we're not that old either. And just to recognize how like, we're here from like, different parts of the world, kind of using the internet to create the content that we want to see. I know people are just like, oh, every millennial has a podcast. And I was like, yeah, yes, yes, we do. And we're making the things that we need to see for ourselves and, the, and you know, kind of making the things like we're I mean it would be nice if we could be in any chart of like amazing podcasts but like we don't do it for the fame and fortune like I, we are doing because we need to see this and we we're creating our things and we're passing on our stories and I hope that at some point we through this or other mediums we get to do what Nanette did for me for a little bit you know or what Queer Eye is doing for for us or this other podcast or like I'm trying to think of more stuff, but everything that I watch is sort of gay. Cameron Esposito, it's amazing. I don't know. I'm, I'm really amazed by that, by how we are like like true millennials being like in the in-between. And we're just using the internet and digital stuff to, to write down history from this perspective and um, contribute it to, to the baby queers and to everybody laterally too, right? So yeah, listeners, if you're comfortable, just... Tweet at us and tell us what's your favorite awesome thing about Pride. Um, I we or what what thing I know like I mentioned Queer Eye and the Net is still very white, but tell me, tell us which we should be watching. That's fucking cool. What are you listening to, Janelle yes. Monae? <laughs> yes, Janelle Monae was was a thing uh, here in Vancouver when she was around in um, a concert. Like an entire neighborhood just was in this one place. <laughs> So anyways, yes, that's what I'm taking with me. That was um, beautiful. That was beautiful. So, oh, so many feelings. So uh, thank you, listeners, for for your time and your attention. And you're awesome. Uh, what's our website, Ruth? www.theintersectionofthings.com And you can find all of the footnotes from all of our episodes if you go to slash episodes and pick whichever one you want. We have many links so you can read all the things that you want to. Yeah, if you're writing a paper, speaking of baby queers, you can find some footnotes there. That's great. What else? Oh yeah, you can find me on Twitter, the Twitter, at undaced uh, and such. You haven't actually said what your name is yet in the podcast. You should say your name. <laughs> Oh, my name is Marianella. That's that's my name. Uh, I'm Ruth Kustic Deal, and you can find me on Twitter at Nessient. And you can also find the podcast on Twitter too at Things Intersect, which is the other name that we use for our pod around the social medias. Yeah, Things Intersect. Well, that was awesome. Thank you so much, and we'll listen to one another soon. <laughs> yeah, I'll see you next week. Bye. Love you. Bye.